We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, the dignity of humanity. I think it involves governing ourselves, feeling like we have some say over our future. And fascism is the exact opposite of that. The prospect of a President Trump is something genuinely new in American history. I'm reminded of a semi-satirical 1935 political novel by American author Sinclair Lewis called It Can't Happen Here. Published during the rise of fascism in Europe, the novel describes the rise of uh, Buzz Windrip, a U.S. senator who's elected to the presidency after fomenting fear and promising drastic economic and social reforms while promoting a return to patriotism and traditional values. After his election, Windrip takes complete control of the government and imposes a plutocratic totalitarian rule with the help of a ruthless paramilitary force. Does this sound a little bit familiar? It appears it actually is happening here. Trump's regime looks like a military dictatorship blatantly putting America in the service of the oil industry. Not the way it's supposed to be. Since the election, people have been asking me, what can we do? How can we traditional patriotic Americans best and most effectively fight fascist Trumpism? Our guest today, Alexander Kolokotronis, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, writes, People power need not be confined to a chant. The formation of anti-fascist coalition provides the opportunity to convert these dreams and aspirations into a concrete and transformative program at the municipal level. What role can anti-fascism play in building this alternative? Very pleased to have with us Alexander Kolokotronis. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Bert. Well, Alexander is a Ph.D. student in political science at Yale University. Well, Yale also saw uh, George W. Bush, but I won't hold that against you. He's the founder of (laughs) Student Organization for Democratic Alternatives and formerly the student coordinator of NYC Network of Worker Cooperatives. And he's written an article for Portside asking, Is America Ready for a Municipalist Movement? Now, the term municipalization isn't, frankly, on the lips of most Americans. But we've all at least heard of fascism. Probably not this idea, which is neither traditional right nor left. Let's, let's start by defining terms. 
The liberal standard has long been FDR's New Deal, by which the economy is rescued through the massive federal intervention. Hundreds of thousands of jobs were created, and our infrastructure was greatly improved. A lot of good was done in the New Deal, and decisions were made not at the state or local level, but really at the top, at the federal level. Solutions were imposed from the top down, which a lot of people on the right, on the you know, genuine conservatives, don't really like. Traditional Republican solutions, of course, have been laissez-faire, let private enterprise alone uh, do it. Economic benefits will just trickle down. Of course, no government intervention, and that never, ever works, <laughs> no matter how often they try. So in this context, what is meant, Alexander, by the term municipalization? Uh, municipalization, I think, could mean a few things. In the plainest terms, it could mean town or city government control, ownership, or management of certain services. And the United States has a pretty strong tradition in this regard. Uh, here we might think of uh, the uh, concept of sewer socialism or the term sewer socialism. And uh, I think it's important to come back to this because uh, with Bernie Sanders sort of uh, recovering the American socialist tradition, uh, there's a need to sort of look at what was actually done by uh, the socialist movement uh, throughout the 20th century in particular. And in this way with sewer socialism, I think uh, socialists were actually the most successful in both creating a program, uh, putting forward legislation, and actually managing services. And so what this meant was basically the nuts and bolts of municipal or town life, providing services and improving on them. So things like sanitation, education, energy and water, these were things that were invested in, scaled up, and access was improved. Nice. So I think that might be the sort of old version of uh, municipalization, but I think it could mean another thing as well. And... Uh, such with as? that other thing, that is, or this newer thing, uh, we're finding it sort of emerging towards the end of the 20th century. Uh, so things like uh, what we've been finding in, say, Porto Alegre, Brazil, where this sort of old service model of uh, municipalization was tied to and transformed by being also connected to decision-making power vested in residents themselves. So things like participatory budgeting, which I'll likely touch on a little bit later, but also things like opening up uh, utilities. So those things like water were given sort of multi-stakeholder governance and management. That is to say, various constituencies were provided or um, encouraged to come to forums to provide their input as well as make concrete decisions. So with water utilities in Porto Alegre, this has meant things like the workers at the utility plants or utility services actually having a say and having decision-making power alongside consumers and city residents, hmm. as well as with those appointed by city councilors. So that there was dialogue with groups, but also more to the point, uh, power is and has been shared between those groups. Wow, it sounds remarkably good. I mean, it sounds complicated, and uh, I'm reminded of a quote from H.L. Mencken many years ago who said, to every simple problem, you know, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. And what you're, <laughs> you know, and what you're talking about here, Alexander, is, is, is somewhat complex. It's not easy. It's not just one size fits all. But municipalization, I, I think, can be you know, more tailored uh, and adjusted to local people, how actual local people feel about things. What a concept. Actual, dare I say, democracy, you know, involving some economic democracy. 
boy, it's it's really different. And, you know, peop- we have to find something different. And among the many threats to life as we've known it in America from a President Trump, I still can't believe those words go together. Uh, one of the most immediate, uh, you write, is his threat to cancel, to eliminate all funding to sanctuary cities. W- what does this mean? And, and how does this, if carried out, almost automatically put municipalities at what you call the forefront of the resistance. So I think uh, with sanctuary cities, we're seeing this sort of uh, tension or even resistance unfolding already. So to be clear, uh, sanctuary cities don't really quite have a set definition, but uh, most simply, uh, they can be thought of as uh, areas in which um, undocumented immigrants are uh, basically protected by a particular institution in as much as either collaboration is, uh, there isn't collaboration between said institution and the federal government, so for example, not providing information on who is undocumented, to even something where activists hope uh, that uh, such institutions uh, prevent federal government interference. What that looks like, I think, is uh, going to take shape over the next few months. But what we're seeing is in places like New York City, uh, Los Angeles, and, uh, and Chicago, and a whole host of other municipalities, from the largest to medium size to smaller ones, we're seeing uh, mayors basically taking a stance saying that they're not going to collaborate with the federal government, and they are making commitments to protecting uh, their undocumented constituents and residents. Again, a lot of those things have been put forward in broad strokes, but they are making firm public commitments and often alongside their own uh, legislative assemblies, that is, their city councils or their aldermen. And as they're sort of uh, putting forward those commitments, activists are holding them to it, and it looks like this tension is um, sort of uh, taking on a, a new level, a new form. And what that'll be, though, after the uh, inauguration, we, we have to see. But this is something that I think activists are preparing for and still uh, trying to make hard but um, concrete policy recommendations and take steps towards um, fleshing out what that actually means. It's so interesting the way, you know, if, if one is a student of history at all, it's clear that it, it, it can't be predicted, really, that, you know, where changes start happening is not where they'd be predicted from. It just sort of you know, surprise, surprise. I mean, the cities, by uh, declaring themselves sanctuary cities and recognizing that, hey, they have these people here to protect, all of a sudden they're going to be thrust into the forefront of this uh, fight against uh, fascism, if indeed Donald does become president, which is still, I just, it's amazing to me. Uh, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Alexander Kolokotronis. Uh, his article is America Ready for a Municipalist Movement. And it's so different. It's so unique and so uh, optimistic, I think, believe it or not. What would, like, what would it look like if, as you write, quote, fractures between national and local governments are widened. And I think that's, you know, what we're starting to see uh, may happen with regard to what we were just talking about with the uh, sanctuary cities. So what would it look like if there are suddenly fractures between national and local governments and and they get widened? I think it could mean two things. And one is, uh, as you said, sanctuary cities and and what we've touched upon. So um, things that involve uh, scaling up what's already being done, in fact, not collaborating with the federal government on, on certain issues, um, expanding that, but be even being more public about that. The other thing I think also is 
being more overt and public about taking policies into a different direction. So there's been a lot of policy innovation uh, on the ground in municipalities for the past decade or so, especially with the congressional gr- uh, U.S. congressional gridlock. But uh, this hasn't always received the most attention, sure. and I think it will receive more attention, especially as, one, the media is very split on, as we can see, uh, getting attacked almost every day by Donald Trump. But also, uh, people are searching for solutions, and actively so, searching yes. for something that is both different, uh, of course, very different from uh, the fascism we find with Donald Trump, but also different from uh, the policies that have been, forward, been put forward by the Democratic Party. So in a way, I think city governments will be scaling certain policies, and those policies will be highly publicized or potentially highly publicized Mm, and looked at. So, for example, things like um, economic democracy and more municipal control and access to residents, these things will be in stark contrast and in a much different character than the policies put forward by Trump administration. And I think that within itself will also be a point of contention and cause tension between the federal government and local governments. And politics is so much theater. I mean, that's what the media goes for. And, and you know, let's face it, candidate Trump uh, sold advertising. It was great theater. And if this is something dramatic and different, it should, uh, you know, it, it's it's theater and it, it might play out. Who knows? You never know how it's going to uh, play out. You know, in recent decades, and I think what you're talking about here is something that genuine conservatives have long talked about. They don't like the decisions coming from the top down. They don't like the federal government having the power uh, for years. I mean, people on the kind of racialist right down south uh, wanted states' rights. They didn't want the federal government involved at all in terms of social issues, protecting uh, people that they'd like to discriminate against and treat unfairly. So this this is really a, a, a different animal entirely. And in recent decades, Democrats have traditionally looked to solutions coming from the federal government, national health care, expansion of Medicare, sustainable energy project, environmental restoration and preservation, public school funding, building roads and bridges, rebuilding our electric infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these are big projects. All this requires great amounts of capital investment. I wonder about the application of municipalization in these realms. Can it work, or do certain things just have to be, because they're so big, done at the national level? Maybe I'm guessing there's a mix. What do you think, Alexander? Uh, I think it is a mix. So in New York City, uh, where I'm from, the certain policies... Uh, have been sort of handed down in a top-down manner. So, for example, with Hurricane Sandy, we found a whole uh, a whole stream of funds coming in from the federal government. However, the funds were going in sort of the wrong direction because of top-down mandates and weren't actually really going towards uh, fixing certain infrastructures and um, sort of uh, providing a- an upstart to the local business community. And I think one reason is because of this sort of top-down fashion so or top-down approach to things. Uh, some have written about municipal approaches uh, being taken on in sort of collaboration with the federal government. Mm. Again, that might be a little bit difficult in the context of Trump, yeah. but uh, <laughs> just to sort of think about uh, what that uh, collaboration might look like, people have talked about, say, um, <clears throat> creating sort of um, job guarantee programs. Mm. And these programs would basically, uh, and maybe, again, not with Trump, but something that could be put forward by the Democratic Party, 
um, and certainly uh, being uh, supported by certain people associated with the Democratic Party, is that these job guarantee programs would, would do just that, guarantee a job to anyone willing to, willing to work. But these programs could be municipally managed, or they could be managed by uh, local nonprofits, local uh, agencies, or uh, groups of agencies and nonprofits together to basically design, design jobs in collaboration with residents uh-huh. for ones that both meet community needs and meet the skill level or meet the education level of that constituency. So rather than, say, having a job, uh, a job guarantee that's mandated top-down that mm-hmm. creates a sort of uh, imagine, uh, imagined uh, fantastical hope for what uh, jobs we'd like to fill, things could be tailored in such a way where, yes, there is uh, funding and resources provided from the top, but also a nimble and nuanced uh, local approach to actually implementing those those policies and uh, taking from those resources. Boy, In this context, yeah. I think with Trump, we're seeing things that um, things like public school funding, build building roads and bridges, uh, rebuilding our electric infrastructure. I think these are things that um, are also going to be a point of contention. Uh, at the local level, especially as we see conflict between, say, uh, police unions and activists in other areas. So, for example, something that activists in Chicago have have very much publicized and campaigned around is that despite schools, uh, up until recent recent union contract, but uh, despite schools sort of like having funding sapped away from them, uh, around 40% of the municipal budget has gone towards policing. So I think certain things like this are also going to be amplified. And depending on the local context, I think we might see uh, battles over where that sort of funding goes. But it seems certainly that in certain cases at least, especially like in Chicago or in New York, New York that frequently actually has been running surpluses, mm. uh, you, you can see this sort of funding going towards these directions. And there's certainly ways in which we can think of um, – sort of coming up with a leaner, leaner uh, municipal structures, sure. but ones that are also ex- more expansive in providing resources and access. Yeah, and, and having things that actually do what they're supposed to do. I'm thinking of uh, a few weeks ago I did a show about uh, uh, public housing, and uh, I back in the uh, late 1970s worked in a, uh, uh, a firm that... Uh, was involved in in public housing issues, and part of the problem was the people who live in the public housing, they're at effect. They don't have any say in how it gets done. And in so many factories, there's no way for people who know the stuff really well, who are right there on the ground, no way to participate in decision-making. And I think this is one of the things that genuine conservatives have been complaining about for years, is that you know, people are just at effect. They're subjects rather than citizens where we're able to participate in decision-making and come up with better things. It'd be nice. I mean, housing, if if you have no say over your housing project, for example, what kind of ownership are you going to feel about that? But if people feel ownership, if they have a stake and a say in what gets done and how it gets done, it's more democratic with a small d and, and things turn out a lot better, I think. You know, and for years we've we've heard the phrase "think globally, act locally." I'm I'm thinking that this really uh, fits in that because people are, you know, really flustered. What do we do? Uh, and it sounds like you know, local solutions are really part of it. They actually can be part of it. I wonder, you know, how this can be made to happen. And maybe maybe this is a, a good time to tell a little story. This show is produced in New Hampshire. 
which has its own special breed of conservatives, I'll tell you. There are traditional pro-business, small government Republicans, right-wing ideologues, religious political extremists, uh, Tea Partiers, and now Free Staters who are pretty much libertarian. I, of course, am not of the above. I, I had the opportunity to serve in the state Senate. I was a senator from 1990 to 2004. I was unquestionably the most left of center, which was, I was fine with that. It was quite a pleasant surprise. Uh, I, I forget the year, but in, in our second largest city, Nashua, the city of Nashua, which is a big city, had a contract with a private water supplier, the, you know, the water utility. The city was not happy with the service they were getting and were frustrated by years of inaction by the privately owned public utility. The solution was proposed by Republicans in the city and Republican senators. Their solution was to municipalize the water utility, to, to take it over and have exactly what we're talking about here. I sat back rather gleefully and watched as these conservative Republicans successfully instituted a little socialist revolution. They municipalized what had been a privately owned and controlled public utility for the common good. Your thoughts on why municipalization might quite logically appeal to classic conservatives, and I wonder if, if it might fit with what Reagan talked about in terms of devolution. Your thoughts on this, Alexander? Interestingly, and I think this actually ties with employee ownership, something that I've uh, worked with, worked on, and, and continue to be a strong supporter of, uh, we find that Reagan himself actually said, uh, I don't have the exact quote, but it went something along the lines of, uh, employee ownership is the wave of the future. Okay. And wow. Though the employee ownership he talked about was a little bit less uh, democratic, it was uh, more an, an undemocratic, undemocratic form of employee ownership, still better than um, many other uh, uh, forms of ownership and enterprise sometimes, but still uh, undemocratic. Uh, we find that these sort of uh, vocalizations, these sort of phrases, provide a real opportunity to uh, to sort of change the discourse or take the discourse into a direction where we can talk about things like 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 the, like uh, the example of what you just talked about. I've talked to many Republicans as well who I've talked about worker cooperatives with that is businesses that uh, operate on the basis of one worker one vote, mm -hmm. and they very much support these kinds of enterprises because it very much fits into in individual uh, individual uh, business ownership individual responsibility uh taking an active role over over their lives and not looking to say uh someone at the top or somewhere elsewhere for right, coming up with solutions right. or in fact even identifying problems i think these are things that especially at the local level when you when when the vested interests aren't as much uh in the room or aren't at play as much these kinds of conversations can happen and that's what makes uh municipalization or municipal policy another very exciting uh, another very exciting track or another very exciting possibility. And it's that um, at the local level, we don't see, say, um, as much of the Exxon Mobiles. I mean, depending on where you live, of course, but say, uh, if you're not in an oil town, you don't see as much of the Exxon Mobiles or as much of the uh, other corporations sort of getting into the room and trying to uh, blunt certain policies. So you could have conversations across the aisle that are not even, say, about uh, compromise, but are actually about creating together certain policies that ensure that everyone is, is happy and everyone is being empowered. And in that way, I think 
I found also that there there can be a case made to libertarians about employee ownership, about worker ownership, about workplace democracy even. Not everyone, but a substantial amount find it at, at minimum over time very hard to come up with a counter argument. I mean, if say the argument is that oh business ownership is is what we must value and below that is a stronger value of individual responsibility it's it's easier to sort of go to the, towards that underlying argument and say hey these sort of forms these sort of institutional forms of uh business of of ser- of public service of management these things actually speak more to the values that you espouse that you really want to see um manifest or materialize in the world than even some of the policies you've traditionally aligned yourself with. And I, that, that I, I think, is, is so important to think about. And uh, another reason why I think it's important to look at municipal policies, because they are about real ownership and about real responsibility. And also to touch on this, um, on the point you made about public housing, there are even examples about uh, of participatory budgeting in public housing. So uh, just to be clear, participatory budgeting is basically uh, a du- direct democratic control over a portion of a public budget. And in Toronto, they've been having a direct, basically a direct democratic budgeting process over a portion of the public housing budget. It's unfortunately very low, as many of the uh, participatory budgeting processes are in North America. So it's about $8 million a year for the last 15 years, and that only unfortunately constitutes 1% of the budget. In other places, though, around the world, we've seen uh, towns, full full towns, do 100% of their investment budget according to participatory budgeting. In Porto Alegre, it's been 30 to 40% of their budget, so in the hundreds of millions. Uh, but either way, we're finding examples and seeds of this kind of potential control and participation and responsibility that appeals to both people on the left and people who are on the right and just want to see better management and better better dialogue and most of all uh, responsibility on the part of citizens and residents. That sounds so much more uh, traditional conservatism than traditional, you know, left socialism, whatever. I mean, that, you know, keeping decision-making local, uh, having uh, the locality have some real strength. Now, of course, one of the problems, I mean, New Hampshire is made up of 234 little towns. Well, some of them are quite big, like Nashua is, but a lot of people don't even participate in budget decisions. They have open hearings. You know, town meeting is a very traditional Democratic with a small d uh, tradition, and people don't participate necessarily in the budget making. But the important thing is they can. They, you know, if they don't participate in it, it's a little tougher to complain about it, and the, and the possibility is there. And it strikes me that that's a very uh, conservative uh, notion of, of doing things, you know, having it so that people can participate. Now, this brings up a lot of questions. It, it used to be said that as soon as Americans hear the word socialism, they stop thinking. It strikes up the old fear of Stalinist communism, where nobody gets to participate, uh, and it's all coming down from the top, and you know, it, it, terrible uh, destruction and awful things happen under under uh, Joseph Stalin. No one would ever vote for that. the The appeal of Bernie Sanders across all party divides was and remains really historic. As you write, quote, the Bernie Sanders campaign has allowed for a normalization of the word socialism at the municipal level. Now, say more of, of, of what this means, please. How the Bernie campaign 
started to alleviate the fear of the unknown by describing what it can mean at the actual policy level, not just the uh, idea level, the nebulous idea level that can be scary, and the significance of this regarding the future of municipalization. Uh, so, at minimum, I've seen this in my own uh, sort of uh, experience and uh, policy work. So, uh, for example, uh, when I was at Queens College, we implemented a participatory budgeting process, which is uh, still going on. And uh, there, uh, this was sort of uh, in the thick of the Sand of Sanders' rise and the Sanders campaign. A number of students were, at minimum, very energized by the Bernie Sanders campaign. Oh, yeah. And what what that allowed us to do, of course, was to uh, to actually make that discourse or or make that energy and 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 create a discourse that was very concrete. So we spoke about things about we spoke about participatory budgeting. We spoke about things like employee ownership, and we also connected it to things going on at the at the local level. So, for example, in New York City, uh, over the last uh, three years, the city. Uh, government has been providing funds towards worker cooperative development and incubation. Uh, $1.2 million a few years ago, then to 2.1, and then uh, uh, somewhere in the range between 2 and 3 million again uh, this last year. And with these sort of ongoing activities, even though they were very small and have been very small, it allowed uh, students and it allowed residents to sort of very concretely, not simply imagine, but connect the word socialism or the ideas of socialism to things that were happening right on the ground in their communities that were benefiting people's lives. So, for example, um, another another thing I saw uh, at a uh, nonprofit in Brooklyn, I attended a, an orientation for uh, a new worker cooperative that was to be formed. And it is, it's a worker cooperative, a tutoring worker cooperative, that actually includes uh, 17 or 16, 17-year-olds to uh, people in their 30s providing tutoring services. So something really empowering and transformative with having teenagers, in fact, taking on uh, business ownership. Wow. And one thing that really struck me there was... Um, People were sort of going around the room being asked uh, how they heard about this, uh, did they know anything about employee ownership or worker cooperatives. And one uh, young person there, she said that she was there because her mother was in one of the worker cooperatives developed by that nonprofit, and it changed their lives so much. And that really struck me to see that if if we can do these things at a really small scale and see already the intergenerational impact that's mm-hmm. occurring, and we can put forward a discourse of, of of socialism that has policies that connect with those very things that are providing such an intergenerational impact, we can see these things really scaled up. We can see these things scaled up in a in a much more immediate term than we can imagine. And these are also policies, again, that even Bernie Sanders has supported. So, at the beginning of his campaign, worker cooperatives were at his were at the forefront of his platform. Hmm. I think it sort of may have dropped off because these are things that you sort of have to uh, explain. It takes more right. time to explain, and right. the the the, uh, the uh, sort of fascism looming over it may, may have made that uh, sort of drop off. But it has something been something that he's supported. He's put forward legislation in Congress time and again to support employee ownership, to create a national uh, business employee ownership uh, employee ownership business center. He's done these sorts of things, and when that's uh, when that's described also to students, described to residents, these things really resonate, and they see, like, they see, wow, actually what I'm doing on the ground connects to what Bernie Sanders is also doing, 
And we are actually actively creating the seeds of what could be a democratic socialist uh, policy framework. And I think that's very exciting for people when they see that their activities are actually ones that connect with what has been energizing, energizing the whole nation. Absolutely. And, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons that uh, Trump ver- Trump's version of populism uh, succeeded, not only because they had a we Democrats put forward a not particularly attractive candidate in terms of so many issues. I mean, people want people feel powerless. People have given up on any sense of power. And Trumpism, at least, offered the promise that you don't have to be powerless. I mean, I think it, the people were conned, quite frankly, and I think we're about to find out about that, that it, it's not at all what he promised. But people are, like, desperate they want to feel some sense of power. They want to feel connected with one another. And if you just tuned in, uh, dear listener, uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. Our guest today is Alexander Kolokotronis, and we're talking about is America ready for a municipalist movement? Now, one of the things about America has been our love, almost worship, of free enterprise. You can lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Of course, there's a lot of myth to that, a lot of wrong to that, but people like private enterprise. And I can imagine people being concerned, hey, if I invest in something, if I go to a bank and borrow a whole bunch of money, don't I get to be successful? I mean, private enterprise has been oftentimes a very good thing. People make it, they they have some degree of success. I imagine the fear could be that well, you know, sort of of the old-fashioned image of, of Stalinism, of sort of uh, uh, eminent domain coming in and, and wiping out uh, free enterprise and having everything be worker-owned and cooperatively owned. Where's the incentive there for people to invent new things? And, and what about the fear that there might be uh, from municipalization and, and the idea of private enterprise itself? Uh, so that's a that's an interesting point, and I think this is uh, one reason why, in the cooperative movement, many of us um, have been looking towards uh, other forms or other ways to sort of expand employee ownership that don't say uh, stir up those kinds of uh, anxieties or sentiments. So, for example, one thing that we've been very much promoting is uh, converting businesses. So a number one thing that we found and uh, is is very much uh, looming over us is that uh, a number of baby boomers are retiring and about a third, according to one study, don't really have anyone to give their business to. Either their children don't want their business or don't want the enterprise, or uh, they don't have any children to give the enterprise to. And so the option is either to sell it or to or to do who knows what, frankly. So one thing that we've uh, been f- trying to put forward um, and have been putting forward successfully, and it would be great to turn this into a more uh, active, uh, publicized campaign, is by appealing to those business owners and saying, hey, uh, you want to keep the integrity of those businesses. And that, I, I find that very, uh, very many amount, a very uh, huge amount of business, small business owners want that. To, although their business will be sold or will not be theirs anymore, they, they want the integrity of it mm. to still be alive and mm. the integrity of uh, the community community to be uh, to be kept alive through that business as well. So we say to them, why not sell the business to your workers? You don't have to give it to them. I mean, there's actually a case or two where uh, some small business owners gave their <laughs> businesses to their employees. Yeah. But there, uh, there are many cases now in which we're finding 
small business owners are selling their businesses to their workers in a fashion that's not rushed. It could be at the pace that they want, so it could take place over the course of a few years. It could take place right away if that's something they want. Yeah. And it effectively, uh, it, won, uh, it keeps the business in, uh, in likely the same or uh, in, the most po- in, the, in the positive way, the same operations going as the workers who the business owner who themselves had hired are now managing and owning the enterprise. But also, um, I think it provides a sort of um, vision of like, giving back in some sense Mm -hmm. that uh, doesn't have to be sort of mandate. It's not a top-down thing. It's a decision of the business owner themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about certain policies that can be promoted, I think it, it need not be things like, uh, all your businesses, uh, w- the businesses will be taken away, or there will be like a, a eminent domain. Uh, the, these are things that are uh, <laughs> that uh, that the co-op movement or the uh, almost non-existent left don't even have the capacity to do. So, and they're not things that even many would would want to do. So, I think um, showing that there is actually a lot of choice in the matter, especially for existing business owners. And showing that it could be a good choice is what's what is what's important. Um, so yeah, and I, 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 think I would, people need not fear. And yeah, it, you know, you, you got to deal with fears. Fears are pretty powerful, as any politician knows. They often base their campaigns on manipulating fear. But uh, I wonder about a question of size and scale, like for example, that that water utility, the private water utility. There was one private water utility that the entire city of Nashua depended on. And, you know, a small business is a small business. But if something, you know, I wonder about the definition of public utility when something becomes a public utility that the entire uh, community really depends on and there's no real free enterprise there. And so, you know, small businesses shouldn't be threatened in any way by this. I I mean, doesn't the question of scale factor into this and and what is really uh, a public utility? Uh, certainly. And also, I think even with enterprise, um, we need not uh, fear scale. So, uh, for example, uh, the largest worker cooperative in the world is uh, Mondragon. In, uh, it's, a comp- it's the third largest company in Spain, actually. And it has 80,000 worker owners, uh, where all 80,000 people basically get to elect the uh, board of directors of this uh, large worker-owned enterprise, and it's it's been amazingly successful. So even in um, the cases of even in instances of, of huge scale, we're finding that this is not simply a workable model, but actually one that is is actually profitable. And also here in the United States, we find, uh, for example, in New York City, an enterprise called Cooperative Home Care Asso- Cooperative Home Care Associates which has about 1,500, 1,600 worker owners and has been uh, alive and well for about 30 years uh, and is one of the more, more successful worker cooperatives in, uh, in, on the continent. Um, so same thing even, I think, with public utilities. I think it's about, and this is where uh, it harkens back to the beginning of, of, uh, your, of the show where you said uh, um, complex problems and uh, right. simple solutions. Uh, I think it, it so much depends on um, how we design the processes, and this is what makes it exciting. Uh-huh. Um, if we have a large public utility that we want to make uh, a more a more of a multi-stakeholder uh, or convert into more of a multi-stakeholder operation, I think we need to come up with ways in which we can actually get the input of people in designing that. 
So if it's a utility that is over, or if it's a utility that is uh, of need to uh, a county or multiple counties, I think there are ways we can involve people and way and processes we can put forward that allow people themselves to design design that institution itself. So mm. people themselves will know how much time they have, or people themselves will know how much input they really want to have. So say people want to have uh, decision-making power over an overarching policy, but they might not want to be involved with uh, every step of the way nuts and right. bolts. I think right. these are things people will, will know themselves, and it's why it's important for them to be involved in the design as well. If people aren't involved in the design, we will get the same. We'll repeat the sort right. of top-down clunky mistakes. So, <laughs> it, in a funny way, it's actually not only creating participatory institutions, but making the process itself of that creation participatory uh, to ensure that we actually get a real process that meets the real needs of people and uh, and gives them the actual spaces that they desire uh, for input and for say. Democracy, I like it. I do. I really do. Uh, we call the show Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, there, there's a lot of uh, aspects of today's Republican Party. Of course, many of us thought after Trump was uh, crushed, they'd be uh, scrambling to redefine themselves. But poof, that is not the case. But one of the main flows within the Republican Party these days, of course, is that of libertarianism. That brings up somebody you mentioned, Murray Bookchin. What what did he mean by libertarian municipalism? Tell us about his vision of counterpowers to the centralized nation state. Uh, so Murray Bookchin uh, is a, a little known, uh, yes. uh, although much more known now, uh, American libertarian socialist. So. Um, People like Noam Chomsky, for example, have talked about libertarian socialism being the really the the true uh, or the original um, sort of bearer of the word libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And libertarianism really only took on the form it has taken um, in the 1970s, in fact. Mm. So for a long time, libertarianism was the word of the left and a way to sort of mm. counter uh, authoritarian socialism. So, in other words, people saw that people who saw themselves as libertarian socialists. Saw, saw themselves in contrast to those uh, to those uh, further on uh, further on the maybe not left but furthermore as a uh, as uh, authoritarian socialists. Uh, so Murray Bookchin was one such libertarian socialist, and uh, he he put forward again the uh, this idea of uh, libertarian municipalism, which was about vesting power in people. Um, so similar to um, to sort of the the New England uh, town mm -hmm. halls mm -hmm. or town uh, town councils, as as uh, you were mentioning, uh, but also beyond that, uh, sort of cooperativizing many services to provide more access points beyond simply uh, the local town assembly, um, providing uh, basically or generating uh, an institutional context in which many things were direct are direct democratic, uh, and it's it's something that has actually taken on uh, a life of its own uh he died a few years ago but mm -hmm. actually after he died uh it's some it's it's something people have been really holding to so we're talking a lot about Syria these days mm. uh but in Syria there's another thing going on uh it's called the the Rojava revolution uh in the north basically in the top shelf of Syria where about 2 to 3 million people live it includes Kurds it includes Yazidis it includes uh, Arabs and a whole host of other ethnic groups, and there they've they've actually implemented a uh, a system that they that they see as sort of 
post-state, moving beyond the state in some manner, uh, in which they've implemented uh, direct democratic structures at the base level and delegate structures between towns and cities. And this is over an area of two to three million people that this has been taking place. Hmm. And there are other areas also where we're seeing similar policies being put forward. So, for example, uh, Portugal has just announced that it will be doing a national participatory budgeting process, actually. And it will be, uh, it's being designed or led by some of the top uh, academics in the world, uh, top academic, uh, as well as policymakers around participatory budgeting in the world. Uh, So that's very exciting. We've seen participatory budgeting implemented at regional scales. And as I've mentioned, we've seen um, employee ownership take on really large forms as well. So uh, I guess to bring it back to Murray Bookchin, it's it's very much about vesting direct democratic power in people at all scales and at all levels and ensuring that the relationship between those institutions is also democratized. Boy, it's, it's good to hear that it is actually happening and working. And uh, that Rojava, very fascinating case. And uh, it's fascinating. Before the First World War, the entire area, the Ottoman Empire, was pretty much like that. I mean, it was just there was no state particularly. The people uh, just uh, cooperated and worked together somehow. And maybe it's coming back to that. I don't know. But back back to America, you know, oftentimes I, I think that— uh, there's nothing like uh, uh, adversity to bring people together. I mean, for example, during the uh, Vietnam War protests, the best organizer against the war was Richard Nixon himself because it was just so bad. It helped us, you know, get off our feet. I mean, get off our butts and get out there in the streets and do something about it. And now we have Donald Trump as, you know, I think an, an organizer uh, tremendously. I mean, I don't see a lot of alternatives within the establishment Democratic Party right now, which is why Bernie Sanders has been so strong. I wonder in what ways might the Trump victory be a new impetus for the coming together of various interests, such as worker-owned cooperatives, participatory budgeting, etc. Maybe Trump is the kick in the pants we need. I hate to think that, but... <laughs> I, I do think there is potential for that, and it's 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 certainly what my article was about, and it's something I think that we need to see uh, lead actors uh, step up and put forward. So these policies like participatory budgeting and worker cooperatives, I believe, uh, aren't simply policies that are intrinsically valuable. They are ones that can actually bring people together. So participatory budgeting, uh, it's it's brought together various communities in New York City, for example, um, in, in Vallejo, California, where they have a citywide process. Uh, after the first year of the process, uh, three people actually ran and won uh, to become city councilors. People who had never participated in electoral politics before actually became elected officials within a year of the process starting. So these kinds of things, I think, can really appeal to other groups in talking about how these policies can be empowering. So with participatory budgeting, we see different groups uh, gaining capacity and gaining access to even elected positions. And with employee ownership, we see a way to build living wage jobs, but ones that are not simply living wage, but ones that afford control or offer control to people. These are things that currently disparate groups can get behind. Right. So mm-hmm. environmentalists or ecological groups can get behind worker ownership because wor- certainly the workers are not going to pollute uh, pollute their own backyard when they know uh, when they know it's hazardous to them. At least um, in, at least in most cases. Uh, also, the same thing with participatory budgeting. Uh, 
we see uh, undocumented immigrants have access to um, to these processes. Uh, we see uh, many marginalized groups being brought together under these larger institutions, which, for one, um, provide something that the right has been very good at and mm. the left has been very bad in thinking about, and that's simply having space. I mean, the right has been so good at offering and generating spaces for people to meet and to meet under a certain discourse and under a certain agenda. The left has been very bad at that. For whatever reason, people have not paid attention to the importance of constructing spaces. And those are things that participatory budgeting and employee ownership can offer. They're neither, especially with the case of employee ownership, it's neither a private sector or public sector in some way. Some people look at it as like commons or as a third sector or uh or solidarity economy. Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of spaces that, that are being created right now, but are important to be generated so that we can keep on bringing people in. Right. I think, yeah, well, sorry. I, I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, people felt really frustrated and people have felt tremendously powerless. You know, like this government is not our government. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't saying that. Bernie Sanders was. Uh, and, you know, people want self-government, I think. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking that uh, what's this space you're talking about just just now, you know, in, in bringing people together, I think it's fascinating that, you know, in recent months before the election, uh, there were linking up, it was starting to happen, the linking up of seemingly disparate groups. You had Black Lives Matter and Palestinian rights groups saying, hey, you know what? We got something in common. Let's work together. Who would have thought that? Is it possible, as I think you were describing, municipalization might uniquely serve to bring together feminists, environmentalists, justice reform groups, economic justice groups, immigrant rights groups, anti-imperialist groups, etc., etc. How can, as you write, municipalities be the site of institutional transformation and the material bases for construction of a viable counter power. I'm even thinking of, you know, Black Lives Matter relating to the uh, no uh, Dakota access pipeline thing. I mean, people, it's just all these things are sort of, huh, there are connections here. Address that, if you would, please, Alexander. Uh, Definitely. So I think... um the, these connections are, are, are so promising and so exciting, yes. and uh, we're seeing that um, starting at the base level can really make people think about how things can be scaled up. I think that's one reason and one way uh, that participatory budgeting is scaling up in Portugal. There's been a number of participatory budgeting processes at smaller scales throughout Portugal, but because of that experience of having done it at a smaller scale, because of a certain preparedness, and therefore a lack of anxiety about what larger a larger version of that process would be, it's allowed those things to be thought about in a free and creative manner. And I think the same thing works here. Before we can really talk about um, participatory democracy at a larger scale, before we can talk about uh, democratic socialism even at a larger scale, we have to trust ourselves in being able to apply and implement those policies at a smaller level. Because if we can't do it at a smaller level, that's going to create, that's going to one, delegitimize uh, our advocacy at the at the larger level, and two, it's actually going to prevent us from thinking about how to not uh, to think about how to think about these policies on a nuts and bolts uh, in a nuts and bolts way at a larger level. So, in other words, to bring it back um, to experiment with things like participatory budgeting, with worker ownership, with uh, with um, 
other policies that empower other groups right. at the smaller level, right. we can think about across municipalities or across states and come together and, and deliberate about what it is we'd have to do or what it is we need to do and can do at these cross-regional scales um, for implementing policies that are similar to that. So part of it, I think, is just um, giving our spe- ourselves the space to, to, to start and then to think larger, but also part of it, I think, is, again, this point of creating material bases. So before we can even meet <laughs> across regions, we need to be able to meet within our own towns. Mm. I remember when I first started uh, the, the student group at, uh, uh, in New York, uh, I thought it would be very easy to just find a small space off campus uh, for people to meet. And it actually took weeks for me to find a, f- uh, a small, somewhat affordable space for a group to meet and talk about organizational matter- matters. If we don't have spaces like this for people, for people, uh, people numbering in the 10, uh, uh-huh. say 10, 20, 30 people to meet, how can we think about policies at a larger level for a city? And furthermore, how can we think about policies for entire states or across states? I think this is why we need to start building at the local level, because one, we need to, we need to be able to sort of breathe <laughs> in moving forward, but two, that will allow us to then think larger. Boy, that's fascinating, too. And, and one of the things you mentioned in your article is something like sister cities, which have been around a really long time. And I think that's... a perhaps a fascinating model of people connecting beyond borders. How has municipalism and regionalism already been mainstreamed through things like that? Uh, so we're seeing all sorts of, uh, besides the sister cities, we're seeing all sorts of ways in which cities are coming together. Uh, one, there's uh, a number of forums in which mayors from across the world uh, come together and talk about the policies that they are implementing uh, within their respective cities. So we're seeing things like uh, United Cities and local governments, uh, UCLG that is. Uh, we're seeing state-level municipal leagues, uh, a national league of cities, the NLC. Uh, we're seeing cities around resilience, so uh, cities that uh, come together to deliberate and uh, talk about what policies they're putting forward to to combat uh, or adapt to climate change. Uh, there's things like the Creative Cities Network, the Interna- International Cities of Refuge Network, and on and on and on. There's a whole alphabet soup, in some funny way, uh, to connect it back to the New Deal. There's a whole alphabet soup of uh, municipal networks and municipal federations that are both at the state level, at the national level, at the international level, at a regional level. Um, these are things that I think are very exciting. And um, that's why I think, again, it's important to emphasize that we build at the base because we can take what it is that we build at the base to these larger municipal leagues, these larger municipal federations, and talk about, if people are on board, how we can scale these things up, both across our cities, but also um, the provinces, uh, states, or uh, countries that our cities are embedded in. I think that's that's the one thing that's also very exciting, and how, in a way, how municipalism is being mainstreamed. It's mainstreamed in such a way in which you name a need or you name an issue, and there is some sort of municipal federation or municipal oh. league that has been created around it to tackle that issue. Because they, many cities and many mayors, many city councilors now see that they can't leave it up to their respective federal or national governments to tackle that. <laughs> they themselves have to sort of come together and come up with solutions. That's true. The uh incoming regime ain't going to do it. Not going to happen. So how can... Well, I want to ask, if I can briefly, we don't have a lot of time left. In your article, you mentioned something called the Jackson Plan. And 
Am I correct in reading that it has worked in the deep south, the reddest of red areas? What is that, and does that relate to this? Uh, definitely. So uh, the Jackson plan is something that very much excited the left uh, for uh, a number uh, for a number of months. Uh, so basically, a uh, mayoral candidate named Shakwe Lumumba ran on a platform of citywide direct democracy and creating quote the Mondragon of the South. So a uh, huge expansion of employee ownership. He won on that platform. Actually, he was outspent four to one by his. Uh, by his uh, counterpart within the Democratic Party, he still won, and he beat his Republican candidate in the same city in which Medgar Evers was assassinated. Mm-hmm. This was a campaign he ran on, not something he snuck in. Yep. This were, these weren't policies that were hidden. These were things right at the forefront, and he won. Unfortunately, he died uh, within a few months of coming into office, so the whole thing has had to be restarted. Oh. But there have been cooperatives created in Jackson, Mississippi, and his son is now running for mayor on the very same platform. So it's got wide appeal. It can unite people of all different stripes beyond borders. How, they, If people are interested in this, and I think they will be, what resources can you point them to? Any particular websites? And how can people find out how to do this? I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased that there's a resistance uh, space forming uh, near where I live. But uh, how can people uh, look into this and, and start to make it all real? Uh, so certainly, uh, I'll point to two resources uh, for participatory budgeting. They can go to participatorybudgeting.org, or they can simply Google the Participatory Budgeting Project. That's been a, a nonprofit I've worked with. And for employee ownership, uh, ICA Group it has been the longest active uh, uh, not sort of employee ownership business consultancy in the country. It's been around for almost 40 years, and it helped create that worker cooperative I spoke of with uh, 1,600 worker owners. So for ICA Group, they can either Google it or they could uh, go to ICA-group.org, and they'll find plenty of information about business conversions, about uh, creating uh, employee-owned firms, and so on. There's a lot of possibilities here, and uh, recognizing that we have to do something here before you know Trump and his fascist supporters can uh, really be challenged at the national level, as you say, we have to establish and consolidate counterpower at the local level. We have to do it. Thank you so much. This is very fascinating. I always like to be optimistic, and this is remarkably optimistic. Alexander Colacontronis, any particular way if people want to contact you that they should get in touch? Uh, so they could reach me at alexander.colocotronis <laughs> at yale.edu. All right. Well, thank you so much. And that uh, we, can, we can make it, we can get better out of all this uh, adversity. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, helping so much to really keep democracy alive. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Little traditional theme here. Democracy. What a concept. Thanks for listening. Of the magic of history.